perspective, August. Uh, but August at Berean is special because we give Nathan Brand, our senior pastor, a study break. And so uh, you're not going to be hearing him in the pulpit any of these weeks. So I want to tell you that you don't want to miss a single Sunday in August because if you survive me today, then August 13th is Brian Clark. And Brian Clark was pastor of Lincoln Berean Church for 30 years, and he was pastor at Broken Bow before that. And he is a fascinating speaker. Uh, he's an just a great man of God. Um, he's fun to be around. He has kind of an understated, droll sense of humor. And uh, so don't miss Brian Clark next week. And then the week after that, it's C. John Steer, right? John Steer, who was senior pastor at Autumn Ridge from 1989 to 2019, uh, who was really a formative force in the Rochester community for many, many decades and continues to be. So uh, he'll be with us uh, preaching August 20th, and if you've ever heard John Steer, you know what a treat that is. And then on the 27th, it's our own Pastor Neil Johnson, next-gen pastor here at Berean. So, don't miss August. All right. So, to get me ready for the classroom, and to get you ready for a little fun here this morning, uh, we're going to start out the message with a quiz. Right? But it's not the kind of quiz that you should be afraid of, it's the kind of quiz where you can get you can get Oreo treats if you are one of the people who provides the correct answer. And there's two Oreos in each package, and you can choose the, the white ones or the traditional ones. All right? So here we go. Here's the quiz. We're talking about naming for boys in the last century in the United States. So, 1923 to 2022, what were the five most popular names for boys in this country over the last century? <clears throat> so if you want to play, all you have to do is wave a hand at me. All right, we'll start with Dave Murray. He will try David. He will try his own name. You got number five. Do you want, do you want the dark or the light? You want the traditional? Okay, traditional. Very well. Okay. All right, so David has been taken. John. You'll try John. John is number three. All right. White or traditional? Your wife prefers the white. And, and since, since the rest of you are completely puzzled as to how I knew this man's name, I need to tell you that uh, this is one of my high school friends who happens to be in the area this weekend and uh, <laughs> decided to come and check us out. So we have not, as far as I remember, we have not seen each other since 1991. All right, uh, let's go with Josh. Michael is number four. You got number four. Uh, light or traditional? Traditional. All right. All right. Uh, let's see. We still got a couple left. Dan Arms. Joseph is not one of the top five. I just realized I need to mark the ones we already got so I don't double, double sell here. Oh, it's Pat. No, it's Pat's wife. Is it Jan? Jan. Joshua? Joshua did not make the top five. There's two left. There's two left. Uh, Yesenia. 
It is not Luke. Luke did not make the top five. Austin. Matthew did not make the top five. Uh, let's do uh, let's do Pete. <laughs> this, <laughs> this was in America. <laughs> in America. <laughs> uh, let's. Who am I gonna try here? Nathan. Samuel is not correct. I'm giving you guys one more minute here. All right, I got Josh up in the booth. James is number one. Yep, James. We got we have a light and a dark left. You'll take white. Can you deliver for me? All right. It's too far. <laughs> That's the kind of thing you can only do if you're the senior pastor. <laughs> All right. Um, how about Darren? Robert is correct. Yeah. There's only one left. There we go. All right. So. Now, the point of that little activity was supposed to be that David is one of the top five names. There are three and a half million baby boys and probably a couple of girls, unfortunate, um, were, were monikered with David in the last hundred years in the United States. And that goes all the way back to King David. He's the first famous David. He's the David that everybody's looking back to when they named their child. And in fact, when they named this child, they named him James David Cluth. So I've got two of the top five there. My parents, super creative. Um, so... Why don't you open up to the passage that we were looking at with Mary earlier? That's the Second Samuel seven. Second Samuel seven. And we're going to look at specific parts of that passage more in depth than others. So, Second um, Samuel seven. Would you join me in prayer as we open the Word of God? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together this morning. We thank you that your goodness fills heaven and earth. We ask that as we open your word, that uh, we would encounter the true and living God there, and that uh, by our time spent with you, we would be encouraged, uplifted, and changed. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's take a look again at verses 1 through 3. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Notice from these first three verses that David is established. He is king over Israel. He's in his palace, and the Lord has given him rest from his enemies. His heart is in the right place. He wants to honor God with everything that he's doing. And he wants to be sure that he's not living in royal splendor while the very presence of God on earth, the Ark of the Covenant, is just moving about in a tent. And if you know the trajectory of David's life, the glory of God is paramount to him. Whether he's writing a psalm, whether he's dancing before the Lord, whether he's winning a battle, whether he's slaying a giant, it's all about the glory of God. 
we would do well to pay attention to David in this regard. So it's not surprising at all that David would want to build a temple to the Lord. But let's go back to the passage. Uh, Verse 4. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Nathan the prophet assumed that God would sign off on whatever David wanted to do. And he got a surprise with regard to this project. In short, God turned the tables on him. Whereas David was saying, I want to build a house for you, God. God turns it around and says, Nope, I'm going to build a house for you. Continue on in the passage. We're verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Let's look into the specifics of this covenant that God initiated with David. I want you to see four things. First one is David's kingship and David's kingdom was God's idea. God literally says in verse 8, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. And if you remember the story, David, son of Jesse, was the youngest child of the clan of Jesse in the area of Bethlehem. And when it comes time for Samuel to appoint a new king, He goes to the house of Jesse. God has directed him to do that. And Jesse lines up his seven oldest sons in front of Samuel. And David's not even there. Jesse doesn't think it's important enough to have David be there. And so Samuel's looking at all these guys and he's listening to the Spirit of God. And no, 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 not that one. Not that one either. To the point where Samuel has to ask, do you have any more sons? Well, there's the youngest, but he's out chasing the sheep. Call him. Bring him in. It's God's idea. And so um, the Lord reminds David here, I brought you to the palace. You're king because I said you should be king. And you know, God's care and God's planning is the same in your life as it was in David's. Your life may or may not have been in your parents' plan, but it was always in God's plan. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verses 11 and 12, In Him, and that's Jesus, in Jesus, we were also chosen, 
having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Now don't think for a minute that it was your great skill or fantastic sense of discernment that caused you to come to faith in Christ. It's not at all. When any human being comes to God, it is always God's initiative. God is the initiator. We are the responders. And so be encouraged this morning. Whatever he's calling you to do, he will make it plain to you, and he will empower you for the task. And I don't know if we allow ourselves to think on a grand cosmic scale too often, but take a moment to think about this. God knew from eternity past that we were going to be together here this morning studying his word, looking at the passage where he initiated a covenant with David's son of Jesse. Our God is a God who knows the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46.10. And that is awe-inspiring. If only we'll just take a moment to take it in. Number two, God promises that he will be with David. According to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16.13, from the very day that Samuel anointed David as Israel's next king, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now, it's very easy to talk about God being with someone. In fact, we do it all the time, right? We, we pray that God will be with someone through a circumstance, or um, did you know that when you say goodbye to somebody, that's actually a contraction of God be with you? So we're wishing that God be with you all the time. But uh, God's empowerment on David was amazing. Listen to 1 Samuel 18, 5. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. God was the one who gave David victory over all of his enemies. And you might remember the chant that the Israelite women sang when the leaders were coming back from battle. Do you remember it? Saul has slain his thousands. What's the second half? And David has slain his ten thousands, right? Uh, David was doing pretty well in the court of popular opinion, even though the song was really annoying to Saul. And continuing on the theme of popularity, God was the one who promised to make David's name great. And of course, with the perspective of 3,000 years between us and King David, it's pretty easy to see that God kept his promise to David in this regard. Anyone who's read the Bible or has gone to church with any regularity knows about King David. Anyone who's acquainted with the history of the ancient Near East not only knows about David, but has studied him. And anyone who's ever read the Psalms has been allowed access to the mind of David under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He was famous in his own time, and he remains famous today, like God said, like the greatest men of the earth. And sandwiched in between this covenant to David is a little comment about the nation of Israel. It's a promise for the nation that David is ruling, that God would plant Israel, kind of like establish them in one place. 
This is in contrast to the nomadic lifestyle that they lived after Moses had led them out of Egypt. But now they'd have a home and they'd have an establishment and they'd have rest from all of their enemies. So this is a direct blessing to Israel and an indirect blessing to David. And then number four, God finishes by telling David that when his life is over, his house, his dynasty would be established over Israel. And again, this is God's idea, not David's. After giving him this promise, God returns to the idea of building a house, but it's not David who will build the temple, but rather his son Solomon. Not only will Solomon build the temple to the Lord, but God will stay close to him and establish David's line forever. And I just want to go off book for a second and say something. If you were wondering whether house in the Hebrew is really house both places, it really is. So God's actually making a pun in that passage where David says, I want to build you a house, and God says, I'll build you a house. And of course, they're not the same thing at all. Uh, but it's, it's there in the Hebrew. So this would be a really simple sermon about a, a beautiful passage where God declares his care and his love for his anointed king and for his people, uh, except that it didn't really turn out quite the way that David and the ancient Israelites thought that it was going to turn out. See, if you know the history, the kingdom is united under David and Solomon, and then things begin to fall apart. So Solomon builds the temple, right? Solomon's temple. And it is a fantastic feat of architecture. It is one of the finest buildings probably ever erected on planet Earth. Um, But he's the last monarch to rule over the United Kingdom. Towards the end of Solomon's life, God raises up an official named Jeroboam who becomes king of the northern ten tribes of Israel. The kings of the northern tribes become progressively more evil. And in fact, there's not a God-honoring one among them. And then God wipes the northern ten tribes off the face of the map by using the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And you say wipes them off the face of the map. Assyrians were interesting in how they conquered people. So Assyrians would come in and then they would intermarry with the existing people there and they would carry off the existing people there. And so the net result was that where you had a nation, an ethnic group, uh, you now have nothing. It's, it's completely been obliterated and that's what they did. Um, the northern ten tribes were gone. But notice that it's only the ten tribes that rebel and eventually fall to Assyria. The southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remain under the control of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and they have a descendant of David on the throne until they don't. And you need to understand the level of shock that this would have been to these people. It would have been like if you woke up this morning turned on the news, and found out that the United States sold Minnesota to Canada. Okay, that's the level of shock <clears throat> that they would be at. Like, what, what is going on? Um, they just didn't have categories for not having a Davidic king on the throne. And I'll show you the reaction that they had to that. Turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. 
Psalm 89 is a psalm by Ethan the Ezraite. This is not one of the top five names, but a pretty popular one nowadays. Ethan. All right, Psalm 89. If you start, if you start at verse 3, really the whole psalm is beautiful, but for the sake of time, we're just going to do a couple selected verses. Start at 3. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. So Ethan reminds God of his promise, right? Then skip down to verse 19. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my, hand, my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will subject him to tribute. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him. And through my name his horn will be exalted. And it continues in that same vein. Again, it celebrates God's power through David's dynasty. Then skip down to verse 30. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, with the iniquity, with their iniquity with flogging, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. And again, that sounds exactly like what we heard in 2 Samuel 7 towards the end of the passage that Mary read for us. Notice where the tone turns. Go to verse verse 38. But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. And he goes on in that vein because Ethan is troubled. The Assyrians have taken the northern ten tribes. The Babylonians have come in in the late 500s, late or, or end of the 600s into the five, late 500s BC, um, and they have damaged and completely, and that's the Babylonian captivity, right? The Babylonian exile. Um, and it completely destroys the Davidic kingdom. And Ethan and the rest of the Israelites are looking around going, God, what have you done with us? How are we supposed to respond? Is your word reliable? Look at the end. End of the psalm. How about 49. O Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies have mocked, O Lord, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Ethan praises God, even though he doesn't know what's going on, even though he doesn't understand his circumstances. He knows somewhere deep down that God is good. So, that's the story of the psalm. So we're left with two options. Either, option A, God does not keep his promises. Or option B, God keeps his promises sometimes in ways that we wouldn't choose 
and in timing that we wouldn't appreciate. Which one is it? Before I answer that question, let me point to one more thing. God had appointed David and all the rulers after him as shepherds over his people Israel. And frankly, they weren't very good at it. Their sin, their rebellion, their disobedience, their self-centeredness, all those things got in the way of being able to shepherd well. And even if they had, even if they had been generally faithful and generally responsible, they were still imperfect men shepherding an imperfect nation. They needed something more. So back to the question, does God fulfill his promises? If God doesn't keep his promises, there's really no reason for us to be meeting here this morning. You may as well be at home in your garage building a birdhouse or something. But the testimony of Scripture is that God does keep his promises in his way and in his time. And as to how God was going to keep his promise to David to have a king from his line ruling forever, the prophets begin to hint at it in Isaiah 11, verse 1, where Isaiah writes, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked." Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Notice that it says stump, the stump of Jesse. Stumps only occur when there was a live tree that was cut down. And that's exactly what happened to David's kingdom. And then Isaiah comes back to this theme later in the same chapter. In verse 10, he writes, In that day... The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Jeremiah picks up the theme in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So every faithful, biblically literate Jew was looking for the day when God would send his messianic king to reign on David's throne and uphold righteousness and justice for the nations. And the New Testament writers were no exception to this. And God gave them the privilege of seeing this word fulfilled up close. And in fact, the very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1 verse 1, brings us back to God's promise to David. Here's Matthew 1 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke 3 contains another genealogy of Jesus, which of course includes King David, and Paul will emphasize the same thought, that Jesus is the king who fulfills God's promise to David in Romans chapter 1. Listen to these verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the scriptures testify that God specifically sent his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be both the Son of David and the Son of God. As the Son of God, nope, as the Son of David, Jesus fulfills the prophecies that were made about David's offspring ruling forever. And as the Son of God, Jesus is able to perfectly obey the Father and live a life that overcame sin. Jesus himself plays with this in three of the Gospels, where he points out that for some puzzling reason, David calls his son Lord. Here's Jesus in Mark 12. Starts at verse 35. Mark 12, 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, I have raised three sons and most of a daughter, and I will tell you that I have never called these people Lord except maybe in making fun of them. But David calls his distant descendant Lord. How is that possible? The only way is if that descendant is both human and divine. So the scripture prefigures that Jesus will be fully God and fully man. And so it's time to ask, do you believe that God keeps his promises? Do you believe that God keeps his promises? The Bible is full of God's promises. Some of them are to specific people, but many of those promises of Scripture are for all of us. Here are a few that I like to hang on to when I'm struggling with my own sin or the conditions around me or I just get too deep into my own head. Um, one is Luke 19, verse 10. It says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That was me. I was lost. I needed a Savior, and Jesus promised that He came to earth to save me from the consequences of my sin. And maybe you're lost this morning. Not sure what you believe about God and Jesus and the Bible and heaven and hell and all those things. And if that's the case, then this promise is here for you too. See, Jesus, 
the Son of David and the Son of God, died for your sins 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. And this morning, he only asks one thing of you, that you would stop trusting in your own efforts to make yourself righteous because it does not work. There's nothing that you can do to please a holy God. And instead, to come to him and say, Jesus, I believe that you died in my place. I believe that your death is effective for forgiving my sins and forgiving me your righteousness. And I want the eternal life and I want the relationship with you that you offer me. It's a beautiful promise of Scripture. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And I encourage you to take advantage of it. And then <clears throat> another one, John fourteen two, Jesus again said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. This promise contains the glorious hope that motivates and animates every believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus has gone on ahead of us and he's preparing a place for you and me right now. The kind of place, the kind of beauty, the kind of wonder that we can't even imagine. And the place the place itself isn't even the best part. Jesus said that he will take us to be with him. See, that's the best part, that you get to be right there in the presence of Almighty God. It's the relational part of heaven that makes heaven heavenly. Well, I bet you'll thank me for not going through every promise of Scripture that I could think of this morning in this sermon. I would like to leave you with this truth from 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. God's promise to Abraham and Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to David, Every promise that he made was fulfilled, is being fulfilled, and will be fulfilled through the person and the work of his Son, Jesus Christ. To him be all the praise and all the glory. Let's pray together as the worship team comes up. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for intervening in the life of David, a shepherd boy in ancient Israel. We thank you for elevating him to the throne of Israel, for being with him, and for demonstrating what a life of worshiping you and seeking you first could look like. But we acknowledge, God, that David was inadequate, that David was, was merely man, and you knew that you were going to send one who would be fully God and fully man and that he would live the life that we could not live. He would die in our place on the cross. And God, you would raise him to life again on the third day. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you are resurrected, that you are ruling right now, and that though we do not see all the effects of that yet, we know that one day you will return in great power and great glory, and you will call each one of us 
uh, to be with you and to receive the kingdom that you promised. And so it's with that hope in mind that we face whatever's in front of us, Lord. Thank you for being with us in the moment, and thank you for being with us for the long haul. In your name, amen.